As urbanisation increases around the world, there's a growing push to create smarter cities through the implementation of technologies such as artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things. Smart cities have the potential to use resources more efficiently, but they also require substantial infrastructure, which comes with its own costs. In this lecture, Professor Salim Ali, a member of the UN's International Resource Panel, will discuss how the digital architecture of smart cities can be reconciled with the material needs of developing the infrastructure to run them. Salim also considers ways in which the smart cities movement can mitigate carbon emissions over the long term and work towards meeting the UN's sustainable development goals. A professor at the University of Delaware, Salim Ali is an expert in environmental planning and sustainable resources development. We hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. Um, so my goal really here is to zoom through about 20 odd slides and give you a taste of what is currently a very a new research program that I'm embarking on. I've only shared uh, this presentation in an earlier form a few months ago at Yale University where uh, I've been involved with the Center for Industrial Ecology doing some work also related to the International Resource Panel. So uh, it's the first time in Australia I'm presenting this and only the second time anywhere that I'm sharing these ideas. Uh, and I've updated uh, some of the work uh, from the earlier presentation as well. So the question really that is on our mind, as Rob noted, is uh, cities are going to be the fulcrum of much of human habitation, and how are we going to make them sustainable? And these are some of the reasons why we, we need to be concerned. Uh, they are clearly centers of wealth and population, uh, and hence they have very high intensity of exchange. Uh, information networks in cities tend to be very robust, and so they become engines of innovation. And so we often hear the term of you know, city clusters of innovation and so on. Um, the other aspect from a sustainability perspective is that cities uh, lead to more efficiency potentially for transportation, infrastructure, uh, and, and resource distribution more generally too. So cities have been hailed in that regard. But how they are planned, how they are developed, uh, is going to be critically important. So, for example, vertical development of cities poses some efficiency uh, prospects, but if you don't have stable energy, then you can end up with a real problem because you can't have people climbing stairs uh, you know, on skyscrapers like we have in Brisbane. So it becomes a real challenge you know, balancing that efficiency without reliability. Uh, they can also be incubators of planning paradigms. You know, my, my background is in environmental planning. My PhD is in environmental planning, even though my earlier degrees are in uh, chemistry and environmental studies. Um, but you know, planning is inherently about the future. You don't have plans for the past. You know? So as a result, uh, planners are always concerned about paradigms which can lead to innovation moving forward in the future. So cities are great incubators for that as well. That's where planners hold um, events like charrettes, for example, which are meant to develop those ideas forward and incubate them. 
Uh, and then, of course, cities from a social perspective are highly heterogeneous systems. Uh, even though when we try to make them homogeneous, they still become heterogeneous because of the proximity issue, right? So even when cities have been ghettoized, you find that there is still going to be much more exchange there than you would have in rural areas. So for all of those reasons, cities are really going to be at the forefront of our conversations on sustainability moving forward. So let's also define smartness because the, the term is often thrown about smart cities and smart infrastructure. Uh, I, this is my personal definition of smartness and I have refined this. This is just like I came up with this yesterday based on rereading some of the earlier work that uh, I had been involved in. And the modifiers and the, the words have been chosen carefully. So data is at the center of this notion of smartness, right? So data to provide feedback, which is very important, because in order to be smart, you need to get that feedback. Uh, and there is an adaptive management aspect to that feedback so that the system itself has some flexibility so it can change. And that has to lead to some dependent outcome, which is to improve the quality of life of users of the system, but also improve the overall resource efficiency. So both of those dependent variables are going to be important, important in defining smartness. So what does that involve in terms of infrastructure? And we'll go into this in more detail. But you need sensors, first of all, because you have to collect the data to provide the feedback. Uh, then you need also data processing infrastructure, which requires a lot of computational infrastructure, hardware of various kinds. Uh, and then you need response infrastructure to improve performance. So you have to build the right kind of roads and tracks and so on, uh, which are going to be able to then develop that, uh, op operationalize that smartness. Uh, clearly, this, this is a, you know, one of many uh, charts that is often used to show that urbanization is kind of an irrevocable trend at some level. You know, we, we clearly see that urbanization is going to move forward, and this is the UN's World Urbanization Prospects that initially developed in 2014, and it's the, the most, uh, you know, uh, current that we have in terms of projecting urbanization uh, and the population that will be living in cities. Uh, and certainly Asia-Pacific is going to be very seminal. Australia is already highly urbanized, but we will see the same trend happening in also parts of the world where it was not the case traditionally. So in India, uh, which has historically been a, you know, very rural and a more widely distributed demography uh, than uh, China. That too is higher urbanization moving all over Africa. Uh, clearly, we have mega cities developing in Africa like Lagos uh, and Kinshasa and Dar es Salaam, uh, and certainly Cairo has been a mega city already for decades. So we have this you know, huge uh, urbanization trend moving forward. So the fundamental research question that I hope to address in this work going forward uh, there are two, actually, but the, the primary one is how can the digital architecture of smart cities be reconciled optimally with material needs for that infrastructure? So my focus is given my interest in minerals is very much on the material side. It's important to also differentiate to some degree material efficiency and energy efficiency, which often get conflated. Uh, they can be related but not always, and that's also important to reconcile. In fact, some of the work we've been doing recently 
for the International Resource Panel and which is being presented to the G7 in the next month or so is focused on the uh, resource efficiency dividends uh, that you can get from material efficiency with reference to climate change because a lot of the climate change literature focuses on energy efficiency but the material efficiency dimension often gets neglected. So when countries come up with their uh, nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, uh, they tend to focus on energy efficiency, less so on material efficiency, whereas material efficiency can also lead to some of, uh, sometimes even a higher level of dividends. Uh, and then the embedded research question there is, you know, why have smart city innovators neglected this? So there, this is partly more of a social science question is that why is it that that background material need, the supply chain that's going to build these smart cities ha is often neglected in terms of the conversations moving forward. We have that, the same problem with broadly climate change infrastructure as well. So when we, and that has come back to haunt us, like wind and solar infrastructure, we know that many times the material needs of that has been neglected. That's why we had issues like the rare earth crisis and so on some years ago, because it was just not on the radar of people. They were like, we're building the wind uh, infrastructure, we're building the solar infrastructure, and somehow the materials will come, the market will be able to figure out the, uh, the mechanisms, but there were several market failures as a result. In fact, Rob and I have been working on a paper related to, to that aspect, if you're interested. So um, this is uh, just to give you a sense of, first of all, that we have a supply crunch problem generally with regard to metals, no matter how you look at it. And this is uh, a paper in Nature we published in 2017, uh, where we, we were looking at uh, projections of uh, copper moving forward in terms of the demand and the supply interface. And uh, the, the, the basic take-home message was that we will not be able to meet the demands of uh, the infrastructure needed to meet a lot of those Paris Agreement targets. Uh, and there will be, even if you bring in recycling, and recycling has a lot of other confounding aspects to it, because you don't, you know, you want to have durable infrastructure, and if you have very durable infrastructure, you don't have stock for recycling, and so you are, you are in a catch-22 uh, where you want to actually do more recycling, but in order to do it, you may actually reduce material efficiency, because you need to be able to make that um, stock more available. So, so basically we showed that there will not be enough if we're going to move forward and we just you know, focused on copper, but then we made the, the uh, argument that we need to um, invest in you know, improve mineral governance and coordination between countries to meet those uh, targets for mineral supply. Uh, now, coming back to cities, this is some work which we have just done with the International Resource Panel. So the IRP, those of you who are not familiar, uh, it's a, a panel similar to the IPCC. Uh, the you know, the, most of you are familiar with the IPCC, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was set up uh, as part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Similarly, the UN also set up a much smaller and focused panel uh, on uh, resource security, which is called the International Resource Panel. It's, or it's only 40 people, so it's much smaller, much more manageable, and also has a much sharper focus on resource security. Um, so we do 
similar reports, just like the uh, IPCC does global assessments. We've done a global resource assessment, which just came out. Uh, and you can find all that at the, the, the website of the, the panel, which is resourcepanel.org. So this is one of the most recent reports that we have done on cities, which is referred to as the weight of cities. And it looks at the material needs of uh, cities moving forward, even if we develop scenarios for improved efficiency. So uh, here you've got uh, you know, some of the key areas that we looked at, transport, district energy, green commercial buildings, and we've looked at metals and you know, these other resources that you need in terms of uh, improvement of um, uh, the uh, overall footprint, ecological footprint of the cities. And uh, it, this is basically showing that under these two kinds of scenarios specifically, uh, where you have resource efficiency and densification of cities, more high density, or where you have just more resource efficiency, uh, you can reduce the footprint, but maybe it will still be maximum you can do is about half of the footprint uh, for, uh, for matters like land uh, and metal uh, usage uh, and, uh, and, and water also a little bit. Um, and um, so, you know, with climate also, it's referring to um, uh, mechanisms for temperature control and so on. So uh, this is a matter of great concern. And we, we are also, the, one of the challenges is, you know, we are having to um, adapt cities uh, and build them in areas which, uh, especially with regard to actually climate, uh, are, are not necessarily most ecologically appropriate as to where they are located, right? Whether it's too hot or too cold and so on. This is some work that was done by the McKinsey Global uh, Institute that looked at smart city applications particularly uh, to improve some key quality of life indicators, uh, which are going to be one of those you know, dependent variables that I was referring to in terms of what we want smart cities to deliver ultimately is better quality of life. And these were the quality of life indicators that they looked at. And uh, essentially, uh, what they're, they're trying to get at here is that uh, there's going to be some level of improvement uh, that can be measured, and we should be uh, considering that, but it's, it's not necessarily a very large improvement in all areas when we really apply all of this smart city infrastructure. So some of the really important ones are time and convenience are going to be very uh, significant. Uh, we will clearly have safety improvements, but that's also questionable <laughs> depending on how well the technology works as we've seen with some of the automated vehicles you know, that can go uh, awry. Um, but jobs, cost of living, uh, not a, a, you know, a major uh, impact. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we have to keep this in perspective also as to how much the smart city movement can deliver. Uh, now, McKinsey also did some, th so this is really the earliest work that has been done on this kind of uh, research. And even McKinsey didn't look at the uh, infrastructure aspects of this at all. They, they were just basically trying to do projections and some evaluation of what is happening currently in terms of smart city uh, applications being deployed. So this is the deployment currently of cities, and some of these people are across the river, the mayors are there. Um, so there are some surprises in, in this. So uh, you know, New York City, which is often lamented in many ways as being behind the, the curve, 
compared to uh, the West Coast U.S. cities, actually has a very good uh, penetration of smart city applications. Um, but then, you know, you also have some other surprises. Moscow, which was referred to often, we don't think of that as being cutting edge. But in terms of smart city infrastructure deployment, uh, it has been pretty good. And, uh, you know, they've also divided it up into the different facets of the, those applications. Uh, and mobility remains dominant. Uh, but you can see that there is also uh, clearly movement in security and, and other areas too. So among the Australian cities, um, uh, I think uh, Brisbane may well be on the map, but they've just given a selection of these cities. So uh, that's why it would be interesting to go back into their data and see where Brisbane uh, fits in. But, uh, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are uh, mid-range in the Asia-Pacific in terms of smart uh, city application deployment. Uh, the South Korea remains a, a leader, uh, partly because of very high level of uh, internet penetration uh, and uh, also um, companies which are so invested in infrastructure, particularly the, you know, the Chebols of South Korea, well-known Samsung, LG, and so on. Um, and uh, Middle East, no surprise, Dubai leads the way. Uh, but, you know, it's good to see Lagos uh, and Nairobi also there on the map. This is another way of looking at their data around, uh, this is more based on uh, surveys of uh, uh, users. And uh, here you have awareness, usage, satisfaction being conflated to give you a broad indicator of, of uh, awareness of the level of citizen um, satisfaction to some degree as well. Uh, and here you've got, again, no, not too many surprises, uh, but there are, it's important to note that we often take for granted the internet penetration and smartphone penetration. Smartphones are going to be critical for uh, the most um, adaptive aspects of smart city infrastructure. And you do have a lot of cities in India which have infrastructure being set up, but they don't have smart phone uh, penetration. So like Jaipur, for example, uh, Jaipur, Mumbai, even Mumbai, you know, which is India's major uh, city uh, in terms of finance and commerce, uh, less than 60% smartphone penetration there. So that leads to a question of whether if you don't have that, then you will not be able to avail of all of the benefits of a smart city um, uh, in that regard. So, so for example, just to people ask me, like, what the, these Lime scooters, that's an example of, you know, smart city infrastructure. You need a mobile phone to make it work was not Uber, all of that car sharing, everything is, that's why the smartphones are so important. Now, the, the other important point, of course, that I want to highlight is smart is not sustainable. And oftentimes in the common literature, journalists conflate smart with sustainable. Smart, going back to my definition, majority of that definition is more about the technology and the feedback and the adaptation, but that doesn't mean it's going to be sustainable. Uh, in terms of environmental indicators. So this is how the International Telecommunications Union, which is very involved in this whole uh, movement towards smart cities, um, they have laid it out is that the smart sustainable city uh, is one where you have this innovation, but it ties in with also the uh, concerns about social and environmental intergenerational equity and competitiveness, all of that together. So. Um, 
whenever someone says we're going to have a smart city, you really need to go further and understand whether actually from an environmental point of view it's going to be sustainable or not. It may well be pie in the sky uh, with you know, not long-term ecological indicators being uh, put into the mix. Now, just to go down memory lane, you know, as a planner, I'm also very conscious that we, we don't want to reinvent the wheel and we need to be conscious that we are part of a, a great noble tradition in planning around uh, nature and environmental factors being incorporated. So uh, Ian McHarg, of course, one of the founders of uh, of environmental planning. I mean, his book, which came out almost 50 years ago, Design with Nature, a lot of those factors around what would make smart, sustainable cities are covered in some of this, you know, green urbanism literature as well. And these are some of the points that are brought forth in terms of the sustainability of cities. So the smart city movement needs to contend with this uh, very venerable literature that already exists in terms of sustainable cities, cities that strive to live within ecological limits, which they have to realize. So Phoenix, Arizona should not exist by this measure. You know, it, but There's just no reason for it to exist at that size. And in fact, if you go back to uh, Senator Barry Goldwater, who was one of the great senators of Arizona, uh, you know, uh, he was the guy who really motivated the expansion of Phoenix to become so large a city in the middle of the desert. Uh, and when he was close to his death, he actually, he was one of the proponents of building large dams on the Colorado River to bring water to Phoenix, otherwise it wouldn't exist. And he, uh, towards his death, he said it was a mistake, really. This, you know, of course, uh, I wanted my state to develop, uh, but, um, but it, it, it may not have been the best use of our resources. So that was very telling. And there's a documentary based on a book called Cadillac Desert, which which documents those uh, aspects. So it's important to keep that in mind, that you know, those limits are very defined in terms of where you have water and energy uh, and, um, and uh, food infrastructure, really, to make this work. So cities that are green, that are designed for and function in ways analogous to nature, so there's a bit of the biomimicry that goes into it as well. Uh, cities that achieve a circular rather than linear metabolism, of course, we want that more and more uh, in terms of uh, reuse and recycling of materials. Uh, and more local and regional self-sufficiency, of course, is going to be important. That doesn't mean we don't have trade, and certainly trade is going to be very important uh, also for uh, livelihood generation. So I'm not one for insularity, uh, and we may well make some decisions where we are willing to sacrifice some level of e ecological impact because we want social benefits. But that should at least be part of our calculations, and it should be presented at the forefront. Um, and then, of course, you know, encouraging healthy lifestyles. That's something Brisbane has done very well. I mean, clearly, it's a city which encourages uh, more healthy lifestyles through bike paths, dedicated bike paths, uh, and, and other kinds of infrastructure, which is really good to have a healthy population as well. Uh, and then, certainly, that ties into better quality of life indicators as well. So, um, and, and that's where I should note this uh, city's ranking that The Economist does and some of these magazines, they do not consider these. 
uh, and you, you know it's really appalling that you have cities like Toronto stand up as you know wow that's really cool and Toronto is not as a Canadian Rob may <laughs> well argue it is not a very sustainable city it has become the development in terms of infrastructure also where it is situated the the, the, the immense increase in the population that has happened 401 the main highway across Toronto is now the busiest highway in the world uh, and they have not been able to develop the uh, public transport infrastructure but it gets rated very well why because the economist methodology for city ratings is ask business executives what do they like and what do business executives like they like good restaurants they like to go to theaters they well, they like to park their yacht somewhere that is not a sustainable city but that's what gets in the media as best place to live best quality of life so you have to be very careful and you have to go through these rankings with great care in that way and i would argue that if brisbane was brought into those actual green sustainability criteria it would fare much better than uh, it currently i think gets shortchanged by so major material stocks and cities what are we talking about you know we've got uh, clearly um, materials themselves are the basic template you've got all of the basic steel wood brick you know all that stuff you need uh, but then you move it up to these kinds of levels and this is from a, a paper in resource conservation and recycling which is a pretty good journal in this space so this is just to give you a schematic of what kind of things we are talking about right in terms of the conventional infrastructure but then you have to kick it up a notch with smart cities all of this will require what we call the fourth industrial revolution infrastructure fourth industrial revolution meaning the networking revolution to to move things forward um, uh, in that regard and this is nomenclature that the world economic forum has used klaus schwab the founder he you know wrote a little book that you can download i think for free called the fourth industrial revolution but essentially saying that this is the networking age you know we've had um, the uh, revolution in terms of uh, uh, the, the industrial revolution coal and then you have you know move into other kinds of computing infrastructure and so on and then you move to uh, 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 networking as the the next uh, level of the industrial revolution development so uh, what are we talking about smart digital layers then you have the layer which is the physical digital infrastructure in terms of mobility smart grids utilities water so on you have sensors which are going to be needed so what are sensors going to be made of uh, there there's a lot of material mineral resources which go into what sensors are made of uh, you have connectivity layers as well for the transport of data itself some of that may not be physically infrastructure going through the city it could be uh, wireless infrastructure satellite dishes uh, but then you need satellites you know so there is infrastructure which goes into the satellites imagine your GPS systems I mean we we have had to build an entire space infrastructure to make sure our GPS systems work and we are dealing with there's an there's this new movement of space junk uh, you know activism to try and deal with all of these satellites which are orbiting and are not being used and what will eventually happen to them so i mean there is all this infrastructure which is not even before our eyes which is really what makes our uh, smart cities work and that too is part of the connections there and then you need the analytics you need data processes you need servers constantly to be able to manage such large volumes of data 
I mean, the numbers are staggering how much data we have produced. Uh, one number that was, uh, and some of these numbers are kind of smoke and mirrors because you wonder how they calculate them. But one number I heard was that just in the last two years, we have produced as much data on the planet as we have done since the the first sort of you know writing by the, our ancestors on uh, stone tablets you know in two years uh, so you can imagine everything all these cameras that are taking images and in China now they are processing all those images to see who is where and what all that data unbelievable amount of information that is being generated needs to be processed and then finally you need the automation then to move things forward as well uh, to make that quality of life difference that all of us are uh, aspiring towards. Now this is, uh, you know, one of the very few places that this research is beginning to get some traction, but still, you know, very early days. I've tried to contact them. There's a center at Cambridge, uh, England, Rob's alma mater as well, uh, where they have the Center for Smart Infrastructure and Construction. And uh, this is a pyramid that they have come up with in terms of trying to understand uh, what are the ways in which we need to think about uh, automation particularly. So, you know, you're thinking about the range of uh, control systems, scanned images, all of that material that you've assembled through your data acquisition. Then uh, you have um, activities for storage costs, so on. Then you have the analytics and then finally you have some kind of automation which comes into it and so they've also developed this kind of governance model around the the triangle uh, and uh, the, the volume of data decreases up there and as things get filtered out and then you have to have some decision making that comes through so very rough kind of typology of how we should start thinking about um, you know trying to reduce the volume to get more value out of all of this data that is often noise uh, and we need to find better ways of managing that noise. Um, so this is also an analysis from an economic perspective that the same group has done that the smart city industry uh, of which infrastructure is really the foundation, uh, it could be almost a half a trillion dollar market by 2020. Uh, with 600 cities around the globe really expected to generate 60% of world's GDP by 2025. So it's a, a great investment opportunity as well and one which we should be taking seriously. But that investment is not going to reach fruition if we are not going to have the actual material needs to bring that to, um, uh, to bear. This is uh, now looking at some of the work that we are trying to do uh, also around this notion of urban mining because, you know, one of the things is cities have a life and cities then need to have a life cycle where you can generate materials from cities as they are uh, being rebuilt. Uh, so China is, is very critical in this because China has overbuilt its cities, as you may have heard about the phenomenon of ghost cities in China that were built out of this massive uh, boon that you had from uh, real estate investments and no one lives in those cities and eventually they will need to be recycled. So this is with some colleagues at Tsinghua University. We are working on this paper, which is currently under review at Nature Communications, but we are looking at um, what could be the um, 
opportunities for mineral stocks from this urban regeneration of cities that could maybe supply some of the structure that we need to build better smart cities. So uh, the news in China is, is pretty good because partly the country has developed a very clear regulatory mechanism around recycling and uh, reuse of materials. And they have had, they've been one of the leaders in terms of the circular economy uh, being operationalized within the regulatory environment. So, you know, these are just different categories of waste, so, you know, electronics and uh, end-of-life vehicles, ELV and so on. If you're interested, I can send you this uh, paper when it's hopefully published soon. We're optimistic it'll come through. It's going through uh, second revisions. Um, so uh, th this is at least some light at the end of the tunnel that we may be able to get some stocks, at least in China, from uh, these resources that uh, cities are regenerating. Uh, but there will still be some bottlenecks. And we don't know, especially for some of these boutique metals, uh, which may be needed for sensors, uh, that uh, we, we may find that there's going to be a real uh, supply uh, scarcity problem. Batteries infrastructure is another one. Of course, the Australian government is trying to be proactive, including QUT is now part of this new CRC on batteries. Batteries are going to be absolutely pivotal to smart city infrastructure because you need to be able to have, uh, you know, deployed all of this infrastructure and you need security of energy supply, so batteries will be important. Um, and batteries technology is evolving, but clearly cobalt, nickel, lithium, are going to remain very critical metals for the foreseeable future. Uh, but we, we also have some other new emerging metals that may become more relevant, like vanadium. Uh, and uh, for that, you know, vanadium prices have been going very high recently. Uh, we're not sure where we're going to be able to resource that yet. So this is just some preliminary results that we have from this, just to show you that, you know, things are looking a little better on that because there will be much more stock available in China from these different uh, sources through what is called urban mining, basically, where you're getting the metals from the old uh, urban infrastructure as well. But this is uh, going to be less possible in other areas, and especially uh, in countries which are developing where there is no infrastructure, so you have to put it in and bring it in from somewhere. But uh, at least in China, that's some, some hope uh, in this regard. Uh, now, China, though, at the same time, I'm also very cautious about approaching China because sometimes, you know, they do, uh, it's like two steps forward, one step back with some of the policies. So like Tianjin, which is China's uh, wealthiest city, uh, and it's close to Beijing, and it's got, uh, you know, now high-speed connection half an hour from Beijing to Tianjin. Uh, it's also the city where they had that massive chemical explosion, you know, a few years ago because there wasn't enough of a regulatory mechanism around enforcement of some of the waste management. Um, this is their eco-city plan. They are developing the, this eco-city around Tianjin, and I visited this eco-city, uh, and... Um, many of those design for nature criteria are not being followed here. So I, I am cautious about, you know, they do some things right and then there's a sudden rush and because of the, there isn't as much of a check and balance system, then you can have, uh, you know, a completely errant plan that gets approved. So uh, I think there's, there's hope, there's a lot of good things China is doing, but it will require much more deliberative monitoring on what can be appropriately um, 
measured in terms of those sustainability indicators. So just the research agenda moving forward, and then we can have a chat for you know, 15, 20 minutes. Um, I'm very keen to unpack this, the material needs of what we're calling smart, sustainable cities. Uh, we need a much more detailed inventory and demand forecast analysis, which has not been done so far. Uh, so that's something which if any of you are interested in collaborating on, if we can get some good data, it would be worth doing further. Uh, I think we need to also consider this um, terrestrially mined versus urban mined sources of material uh, much more uh, definitively so that we can come up with uh, a, a more um, material efficient approach to dealing with this problem. Not to say that mining won't be there and it, mining will remain significant as we know, argued in our nature paper too, but we should move towards as much as we can. It is not room to be complacent. We should move more and more towards that kind of uh, uh, you know, circular economy approach to resourcing metals. Uh, and that will also require the mining industry itself changing the way it operates because generally mining is not configured around um, you know, recycling and so on. It, uh, except for al aluminum, aluminum is a little bit more so uh, because bauxite processing is so energy intensive that the industry has adapted. Plus, we've got, you know, fortunately, uh, very high recycling rates for, for uh, aluminum. But otherwise, it's a problem. Uh, and uh, so th uh, the other part is the technology options analysis is going to require LCA's life cycle analysis approach, uh, which we should look at more carefully, which means when you develop different technologies, you, you should be able to immediately measure their comparative impact. And uh, European Union has some regulations which ask for LCA data, uh, but in general, we don't really uh, apply LCA in the, in the same way that um, we would apply uh, issues around like carbon emissions and so on. You know, we need a much more comprehensive LCA approach to uh, comparing um, technologies. Then finally, policy drivers are needed to motivate planning, which is based on these criteria. So uh, this is where we will need some kind of international mechanism, maybe through there is a UN entity called UN Habitat, which is focused on uh, basically a shelter for human populations. So uh, Habitat, I think, would be a good um, prospect moving forward. I am pleased to also report that um, there is effort now in the form of the multilateral development institutions, which we're talking about, the World Bank, the, the various uh, regional development banks, uh, to invest more in sustainable cities uh, uh, development projects. So, for example, I, I also serve on the Global Environment Facilities Science Panel, which is um, the GEF is the largest multilateral trust fund for the environment. So all of the major environmental treaties implementation is funded through the GEF. Um, it, it's you know about a um, billion dollars a year is given, um, which in the large scheme of things is, it may not seem much, but for environmental projects, it's uh, pretty big. So uh, that uh, currently, GEF has got now a framework for developing programs just on sustainable cities. Before, a lot of GEF program investments were like biodiversity projects or climate change mitigation projects. So now they're saying, let's integrate them and say, fund sustainable cities 
projects. So uh, we've just started reviewing some of the country-level proposals. Uh, and the, the science panel actually reviews all proposals over $2 million. So we, we actually have a say in uh, driving the agenda forward. Um, so you have cities like, for example, uh, we just reviewed a proposal from Dakar, Senegal, uh, which is a, you know, a major West African city uh, to develop a, a more sustainable corridor. They've built the airport 60 miles from the city. So now they're saying, like, how do we actually make this work so that the development plan is more sustainable? So you know, to have Jeff projects which consider even when you make mistakes in terms of where you situate infrastructure, how can you try to build in sustainability planning into improving that? So last slide uh, from one of my heroes in urban planning, Jane Jacobs, whom you may have uh, read some of her work. Uh, she was American, but spent most of her life in Canada, actually, in Toronto. Uh, and uh, she, one of her books, Systems of Survival, uh, this is a quote from that, which I think is really important, that ultimately it's the people like us who make cities, and that's, that, that's going to be the, the real dialectic. You know, What can we do in terms of our behavior and then make sure that the cities are responsive to, to our uh, behavior, but then what can we do to change our behavior too? You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at gut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.